why would Brian Keating, a serious scientist, quote-unquote, have on his show Deepak Chopra, who some say is nothing but a new-age huckster? Well, I think you'll maybe recognize some of the names that I have on the podcast alongside of Deepak who are actually much closer to him and work much more closely with him than even I do. And that includes Leonard Mladenow, author of Stephen Hawking, A Memoir of Friendship in Physics, which you'll hear a dedicated episode about very shortly, and as well as Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek, who is also coming on the show very soon to discuss his new book, Fundamentals. So today's podcast, kind of a preview for both of those interviews, which I confess I did previously in 2020, but looking forward to sharing more and more great content with you as the year unfolds. So please take this opportunity to leave me an astronomically good review, leave a cluster of stars, an asterism, if you will, or even one star in a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe as well, because that helps me get great guests for this podcast. I'm trying to keep it advertisement-free, and your support via reviews is really the only thing I ask of you in return in remuneration. Please visit my website, briankeating.com, to get resources from this and all my episodes, including a 60-page illustrated ebook, which I'll send to you free when you sign up for my mailing list, that documents astronomy's great debate from 100 years ago to today. How big is the universe? How fast is the universe expanding? Is there life on other planets? I discussed that and more with Nobel Prize winner Adam Reese, Wendy Friedman, Jan Levin, Sarah Seeger, and David Spurgle, all of whom have been guests on my podcast. I ask you to do that only for me. Leave a review. It takes a second. I read everyone, and it really means the multiverse to me. So sit back, enjoy this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is Deepak Chopra again, and uh, we are continuing our conversations with luminaries in science, philosophy, the arts, mm. uh, conversations that expand our mind, our awareness, and give us an opportunity to question our habitual certainties. I'm certainly guilty of that. I've been guilty of habitual certainty all my life. So I start with that confession. We are here principally to have a conversation with three uh, influencers in the world of science and physics. Uh, first, uh, uh, Frank Wilczek, who's a Nobel laureate. You'll see all his credentials and you see a link to his book, which is absolutely fascinating. We have Brian Keating, uh, who's also a cosmologist, very involved in the original experiments looking for gravitational waves. And we have my friend Leonard Malodna, who I met at Caltech uh, on a debate with uh, skeptics like uh, Michael Shermer and others. But we ended up being amazing friends. And Leonard has written two books with Stephen Hawking and uh, has also co-written a book with me, talking about the different perspectives um, regarding science and what we call spirituality. But spirituality is a loaded word, yes. and uh, we have to be careful how we uh, use that word. And we'll come to it in a moment. But this conversation that we're having was initiated by Brian Keating. Brian is a very significant 
cosmologist, physicist. I've known him for a while. I think we met uh, together here at some of the conferences in in San Diego with Roger Penrose and other people. So, Brian, you initiated this. Tell us why. <laughs> well. Uh, thank you so much, Deepak. It's good to see my friends uh, all gathered around. We won't team up on you, Deepak. Don't worry. It's not going to be. It's not going to be a physics intervention where we try to convert you to become a physicist like us. Uh, but uh, in reality, I feel like the 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 environment that we're in now is a very dangerous one for society as science loses some of its you know prestige perhaps or we believe that debate is impossible in the political sphere and that seeps into the scientific sphere making it impossible for people perhaps people of faith perhaps not uh, to debate scientific and philosophical questions with comity with friendship this is uh this is what i wanted to to arrange because i think there's really no better interlocutor than you, Deepak, to take these different worldviews, as you and Leonard are fond of saying, and try to find some comity between them, uh, not for the sake of consilience, just so for its own sake, but for actually doing good for the world around us. And I felt like uh, these, uh, these, these gentlemen, Frank and Leonard, are two uh, eminent scientists that I look up to and have learned a lot from. And also, I'm not afraid to debate with me as long as it's done civilly. And I think that's my goal. Brian, uh, we need to come to your book as well, losing the Nobel Prize, because we have a winner of the Nobel Prize. That's right. No, we talked about that when Frank was on my podcast, uh, the Into the Impossible podcast, which I run from the Arthur C. Clarke Center. Come to that, but let's start with uh, Dr. Wilczek. Uh, Frank, may I call you Frank, sir? Yes, of course. Yes. Uh, so, Frank, you know, a while back, Science Magazine published. Uh, the 125 open questions in science. And the first one was, what is the universe made of? And the second one was, what's the biological basis of consciousness? And I stopped right there because, you know, the rest of the questions, I think, depend on the first two questions. What's the universe made of? And what's the biological basis of consciousness? Or is there a biological basis of consciousness? <laughs> and so I was fascinated by your book, um, which is called Fundamentals. And uh, it's an extraordinary book. I spent the weekend uh, reading it very carefully. And I learned a lot. There was a lot that I knew, thanks to Leonard. You know, and Leonard and I have had a good relationship over many years. So. There was a lot there that I did understand. There's a lot there that I did not understand. But here's the question that I have for you right off the bat. And it's your question in a way. What do we know of the physical world? What is the world made of? Because my understanding is only, you know, that there might be two trillion galaxies out there. Two trillion. Yes. There might be... 700 sextillion stars out there. There might be uncountable trillions of planets out there. And that may be less than 1% of the visible universe. So what's the universe made of? Well, at a fundamental level, the universe is made out of space, time, and quantum fields. And the, that 
uh, is a very rich structure from which you can make a lot of things, the sort of things you mentioned. Uh, so, but fundamentally, there are very few concepts that uh, we can boil down the description of the world to, and that's an extraordinary statement and an extraordinary achievement. I, I read that, that the world is made of space-time and matter, but you also said um, fields, and then you said dynamic complexity. What do you mean by dynamic complexity? From, from these ingredients, you can make dynamic complexity, which is a way of representing and processing information. Uh, so those are emergent concepts that... Uh, just as from Lego bricks, you can make extraordinary structures. And uh, if you supply them with motors, you can make even more extraordinary factories that, uh, from a few ingredients put together that have the right properties, uh, fortunately. You, uh, you can make stable but not too stable arrangements of matter that allow us to have patterns that uh, have can be interpreted as patterns of information and that uh, have a useful stability and a useful regularity that uh, support different kinds of objects that you mentioned, stars, planets, but also uh, humans, individuals, animals, and, and so forth. So, so if the world is made of force fields, particles, wave vehicles, as some yeah. people call them, and why does it look like this? Why does it look like you, me, and everything else that we're looking at right now? Well, that's, that's a tough job that we have as physicists to show how from these very uh, abstract concepts that we've boiled it down to, that you can reconstruct the world. Uh, it's been a remarkable journey from Democritus, who talked about uh, atoms in the void as opposed to warm, cold, uh, taste of different kinds. Uh, he, he had the vision that, that actually the, the fundamental part, the description of the world was something quite different. And uh, ever since, we've been learning that lesson deeper and deeper. We've been trying to get a more and more compact description and and now we have I, for practical purposes i believe a complete description of how matter works and you could put it all into a computer program and teach it to a computer that and the program would be shorter than say the program and less complicated than say the program for word because the basic principles are very very simple however they in that profound sense, in that very precise and profound sense, you could teach it to a computer without loss. Uh, however, the uh, world is so abundant in terms of how many copies of these structures it has and supports, and these structures are so rich in the ways they can combine and function with each other that uh, we don't see any barrier to making the world we see around us out of those ingredients. And you don't have to take my word for it. You know, we're, we're speaking at the moment from uh, at great distance over uh, computers made of transistors that were designed using quantum mechanical principles and uh, 
carried and the information is carried by waves that propagate through space according to maxwell's equations it really works <laughs> and <laughs> and uh that so that so we've we've in in fundamental physics we've been on a, a journey now for uh close to 600 years to boil down to description shorter and shorter that that's what we try to do we do analysis to get most basic equations and then synthesis to build things back up and both both part both of those uh directions are important directions for science and we've done i think in, in culminating in the 20th century the late 20th century we've done an extraordinary job of analysis and now our big challenge is mainly synthesis there are there are uh, loose ends in the description, to put it mildly, <laughs> of, of fundamentals. Uh, I think you've alluded to the fact that uh, if you consider the universe by mass, the kind of matter that we really understand deeply is only about 5% of the mass of the universe. And there are other ingredients called dark matter and dark energy uh, about which we know a few scattered facts but we don't have a really uh, precise description worthy of standing besides our description of other elements of matter uh, and the universe of those things. <laughs> and the 5% that you referred to, most of it, 99.9% of it is invisible interstellar dust, mostly hydrogen and helium. So the actual visible universe is... Well, no. Even yeah, there, there, well, there are two kinds of, of dark matter. There's, there's dark matter made out of the stuff we know about, which is not so mysterious. And that's, as you said, distributed in gas clouds, and things that are just hard, but not, but hard to detect. But modern astronomy is pretty good at seeing signals from those things. And then there's some other component that's about six times as much. So uh, the kind of matter we understand really deeply, that's the subject of biology and chemistry and all forms of engineering, made out of quarks, gluons, photons, and electrons, we understand deeply. Uh, that's about 5% of the universe by mass. And then there's something called dark matter that we're not sure what it is. I think I know, but <laughs> where the evidence is not really fully in place, uh, that, that makes up about 30% of the universe by mass. And then there's something called dark energy, which is uh, still quite mysterious. Uh, but we know the equations it satisfies, but we really don't have an intimate knowledge or even an intimate guess of what it's made out of. <clears throat> so Dr. Wilczek, you said something very interesting right now. We know that this works. We are having this conversation. Yes. You and I are speaking. Millions of people might be watching us. Again, yes. We hope to reach 15 million. Uh, let's have your book a little more prominently displayed. <laughs> <laughs> you can look at the 10 keys to reality. So uh, Leonard and I were once speaking in Sweden at the same place where you got your Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> I mentioned that uh, science is very effective, but is it getting us closer to truth? And uh, there was somebody right in the front seat 
who said, uh, Dr. Chopra, how did you get here? I said, I took a plane. Says, you took, you trust your life with science, and yet you say, is it getting us closer to truth? And, you know, he got a standing ovation just for the <laughs> remark. So, uh, you know, this brings me to my second question, which is uh, something that Leonard and I talk about a lot. Uh, can mind emerge from matter? And so uh, I'd like both your opinion on that, Leonard's opinion, and Brian's opinion on that. Um, I think cer certainly certain kinds of mind can emerge from matter. We know that. Uh, my computer will beat me at chess sometimes, <laughs> and, and the best computers will beat the best humans at chess, or Go, or many things that were thought to be uh, fundamental indications of mind and intelligence. Now, uh, we know can emerge from matter because we designed them that way. And the domain of things that our machines can do uh, is expanding very rapidly, exponentially as, as we speak. And the, the artificial intelligence is catching up with natural intelligence on many fronts. And there's no question that that's emerged from matter because we know exactly how it works. <laughs> we designed it uh, from the ground up using quantum mechanics. Uh, and the uh, now there's another question, which is whether the the minds that humans have that we sort of experience in, by introspection and by interaction with other humans, uh, whether th those are really emergent properties of matter. And there we don't have a complete understanding by any means, but the, I think the program that dominates neurophysiology is to assume, yes, that it does. And so far, there haven't been any showstoppers. After, you know, with years of more and more detailed investigations of how memories are stored, how memories are laid down, how the different uh, electrical signals within, and chemical signals within the brain and the rest of the nervous system are propagated, how uh, simple uh, nervous systems and simpler animals work, that there we can understand almost at the molecular level. Uh, so all those indicate uh, that uh, the substrate, the material substrate of, of mind is matter as we know it, and that this doesn't detract from mind, it, it enhances what matter uh, can do. We understand its potentials much better. Uh, and one more thing I would add about that is uh, when physicists do experiments, uh, they have to be very careful now with modern delicate experiments that measure, say, the position of mirrors to within, in, in the case of the LIGO gravitational wave detector, to within one, one, one ten thousandth of the, the diameter of an atomic nucleus. Uh, and, do, and we do many other extraordinary things like measure uh, time, with an accuracy of one second per lifetime of the universe with atomic clocks and compare them. And they, so people have to make all kinds of corrections and precautions for temperature, for uh, uh, vibration isolation, for getting a very good vacuum, 
for making sure that the things are very cold so, so that they're not uh, uh, thermally excited. But one thing that people have never had to correct for is people what, what, what people in the, in the lab next door are thinking. There's never been any demonstration in these very uh, precise, delicate experiments of any uh, ability of mind to control matter. So that's a very powerful constraint on, to me on the idea that uh, there's something other than a property of matter involved in the phenomena we call mind. Okay, so, you know, for the last four years, I've been engaged in creating an AI version of myself. Uh, and uh, it's going to be released in three weeks. It's called Digital Deepak. All right. So we had, we had a demonstration of it with Wall Street Journal. And the journalist asked uh, my AI version, what did you eat for breakfast? And he said, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> and yes. I, I don't eat breakfast. I don't feel hunger. I don't have sexual urges. I don't fear death. Um, so I'm talking about that kind of mind, you know, that has subjectivity imbued in it, uh, longings, aspiration, creativity, um, vision, insight, sure. inspiration, uh, intuition, uh, reflection, contemplation, <laughs> meditation, yes. all yes. the things that you talk about in your book. Yes. And I, I don't see how mind or, you know, I also have a practice at night where I do a meditation where I look, recapitulate my life. Mm -hmm. I look at myself as a boy, as a child, as a teenager. I can't identify with those people. You know, they're like uh, ephemeral memories yeah. that come and go. And I have a very hard time convincing myself that my self-reflection is the interaction of force fields and gravity and wavicles and particles. I want to be convinced of that. But I keep asking myself, who is having these experiences? What is questioning this? And can a machine or matter ever experience subjectivity? Now, of course, my body is made of matter. Yes. And I'm experiencing it. But who's the I? that experiences what I call my body. That's a different question. We might come to that in the end, but uh, I want to go to Leonard right now because what you raise okay. is well, well, the only thing. The only thing I would say in response is don't underestimate matter. <laughs> yes, you know, I would also say- We know that, that matter can do some very surprising things. Yeah, I want to come to that because, you know, I also <laughs> want to quote from your book, um, which says something very interesting. Yeah. We are big enough specifically to contain the entire universe in our minds. And yes. elsewhere you say, I'm large, I contain multitudes. Uh, yes, that's Walt Whitman. Walt yes. Whitman, who is yes. a favorite author of mine. I was also thinking of Rumi, the Sufi poet, who says, look at your eyes. They're so small and they see enormous things. <laughs> yes. Rumi also says, I'm so small. How can the whole universe be in me? So I want to go to Leonard right now because, you know, he was so close to Stephen Hawking, who was physically quite handicapped. 
and yet his mind uh, explored the far reaches of the universe, going all the way to singularities and black holes and Hawking radiation and all that. So, uh, Leonard, please comment on what Dr. Wilczek has just said. Can matter create mind? What's I, your opinion? I agree with Frank, and I think he said it quite well. And, uh, you know, there's uh, never been a, uh, any evidence in, in all the history of science uh, of, of any effect or forces uh, of the mind that, that are not attributable to, to physical forces. And, and I think that as a scientist, uh, hopefully we are all open-minded enough that if something, some evidence would come up, that we would, uh, we would uh, investigate that and, and, and theorize about it and accept it. But uh, in the absence of that, even though there are many mysteries in, in, the, in the universe, there's mysteries of what is dark energy, there's mysteries of who am I, as you say, right? And who's experiencing this phone call and who's, who likes you, Deepak? Who loves you? <laughs> Where does that come from? I don't know. But because I don't know, it doesn't mean that I, you know, attribute it to something beyond the, what I've so far observed. I just don't understand how, how it is. And I would like to make one other point that came to me as you were talking and Frank was talking, which is um, uh, my friend uh, Christoph Koch, um, who uh, I used to know very well back at Caltech. Uh, he he he's, uh, does neuroscience research into uh, consciousness, as you know. I know you know him. And, um, and he told me long ago when I was thinking of writing my book, Subliminal, on the unconscious mind, um, that... that uh, when a scientist studies the unconscious, it's much different than when uh, people, uh, you know, philosophers or people outside of science study the unconscious because we have to operationalize it and we have to uh, study very specific, concrete, well-defined questions. So when he studies the unconscious, he's studying, he studies the visual system of the brain and how your brain through different layers processes information. As you know very well, Deepak, the, the, the photon, the data, the optical data that hits your retina is not what you experience. And it, it goes through many different layers of processing. And your brain is really constructing reality, your experience of reality from that data. But it's not a, an accurate uh, reflection of, of, of that data. That's why we have, for example, optical illusions and things like that. Um, and, and so when a scientist studies consciousness, we, we are, there are scientists who are interested in it. We're, we're not, it's, you know, decades ago it was considered a... Uh, a taboo subject, I think kind of crackpots would study it, but now I think it's, it's taken seriously, but we, we do it very slowly, step by step, by understanding how the neurons in the brain work, how different, very specific uh, phenomena in the brain occur, and we try to get at it piece by piece, step by step, and probably it's going to take another, you know, decades and centuries, perhaps, before we understand it, but that's, that's our approach, and when something's a mystery, uh, you know, we, 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 we approach it, but we, we do it step by step in a very methodical uh, reductionist manner. I know we don't like that word. Um, not that we don't look for emergence, because I don't like the word reductionist, but, 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 um, but we looked at it, I would like to say, in a systematic and, and very well-defined manner using methods that we know um, uh, make it hard for, harder for us to be fooled than if we uh, just the ordinary person uh, contemplating. Sure. That's great, uh, um, and uh, we've discussed this before. And many times. <laughs> many times. Brian, any comments on uh, what has been said so far? Uh, oh. I should mention, we are talking about Dr. Wilczek's book, Fundamentals, 
10 Keys to Reality, please look it up. You'll have a link to that, to Amazon and other sites, a link to uh, Leonard's book, uh, which is a memoir of his relationship with Stephen Hawking, and uh, a link to Brian Keating's book on why he didn't get the Nobel Prize. I did get it. Uh, Frank left his when he came to visit me. So. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, Brian, uh, what do you say to this comment so far? Because I want to move on to something. Yeah, I, the only thing I want to add is Will Check's comments. Okay. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a taste of that conversation with Frank, and I also talked with Noam Chomsky over the uh, over the summer. Here's I've got finger puppets of all my guests, so we're <laughs> working on one of of Leonard and uh, Frank's on the way. But the thing that concerns me after talking to so many people in the last year, eminent uh, scientists and and thought leaders, so to speak, is that we seem to be really obsessed with this notion of artificial intelligence. And it seems like a reductive way that we want to simulate the imitation game, the kind of approach that Turing suggested back, you know, can machines think? Which I remind you, he came to a conclusion that that's a meaningless question. And he felt it uh, sort of, uh, you know, analogous to like, you know, do airplanes fly? You know, the question of what is the essence of, uh, of an operation uh, especially when you're trying to apply it to the human mind. So my my thing nowadays, you've heard of the hard problem of consciousness uh, and artificial intelligence. I'm more interested in artificial wisdom. Is it possible for, <laughs> for wisdom to be produced? Uh, because I think that's the sine qua non of being a human being. I think that's what makes us individuals. I think that's why there aren't, you know, 30 different, there are 30 different types of, of great primates in the world, but but nothing like a human being. And so from my perspective, I'm more interested, you know, kind of in, in this in this notion of the hard problem of wisdom. Where does the where is the origin of wisdom? Where does it come from in a human being? I actually Deepak and I spoke with Noam Chomsky and Roger Penrose uh, two years ago here in, uh, in, in uh, San Diego when uh, Stuart Hameroff organized his conference about con the science of consciousness. And I came away depressed from that in a sense because they can't even agree if electrons or, or Frank's beloved quarks that, that he has done so much with if they're conscious. And, and to me, a field you know, in that state, it left me depressed, except when I started to realize that we are the only creatures that we know that have real sense of wisdom. And so that's what I'm more concerned with. That's great. I was reading Frank's book. And I have to say, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's brilliant. And it raises more, more questions than ever before. And one of the questions is, of course, can the human mind, the human brain, does it have the capacity to actually even know what fundamental truth is? And so when I was, uh, you know, just now, Leonard uh, mentioned Christoph Koch. And, uh, you know, Christoph Koch, uh, of course, worked with uh, Francis Craig, uh, whom you quote, uh, Dr. Wilczek, yes. uh, in the book as the astonishing hypothesis. Which but is that of, mind emerges from matter, basically. Right. <laughs> that mind emerges from matter. Now, one of the other students of uh, Francis Craig was Don Hoffman, with whom I've been having many, many, many conversations. And uh, Don Hoffman was actually charged by Francis Craig to prove the astonishing hypothesis, which he struggled with. He's a cognitive and perceptual scientist. 
he finally gave up. He said, you know, to believe this, the astonishing hypothesis is to believe in Aladdin's lamp. You, you put, you kind of scratch this thing, which is this, which is the consistency of jello, and suddenly it opens up a universe for you. So he finally actually has given up on the astonishing hypothesis, and he's now writing about the case against reality, where he says that even space-time are emergent, they're not real, and that matter is a human construct for modes of knowing and experience wow. of human perceptions. And so when I was reading your book, I, I actually came across this passage where you talk about your grandchildren. And it's yeah. beautiful because you say that your grandchild is actually intellectually constructing the physical world. Absolutely. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, babies are confronted with a big problem when they are born. They uh, are not wired up <laughs> and they get raw sense impressions of the world, which are uh, very confused and very confusing. They the electrical signals that arrive in our brains or uh, the, the impulses of light that arrive, arrive at our retinas are very, very far from uh, a three, the three-dimensional world that we try to make out of them. We have to take that information, find patterns, process it, interpret it as objects, uh, learn implicitly geometry, and do all kinds of things, learn the, the, the distinction between self and not self, and all, many, many uh, very difficult things that uh, we still don't know how to implement really in artificial intelligence uh, in order to make a usable world, to go f to be able to interpret those sense impressions as a three-dimensional space with regularities and other people, and some parts that are us and some parts that are not us. This is a very uh, constructive, difficult process. And clearly, babies, children, humans in general, even adults, don't understand uh, how they do it <laughs> or exactly how it works. Uh, we have not been able to teach machines how to do it, although we're making progress on that. Uh, and it's underdetermined in a way, and I'm, I'm sure evolution gives us some help by doing some pre-wiring, but uh, we use all kinds of rules of thumb and uh, experience. Do If you've ever watched a baby, you know they drop food over and over again or <laughs> throw, uh, and do, do these kinds of frustrating experiments that uh, uh, tire out the adults, but the baby finds them endlessly fascinating because they're learning how the world works. And a baby's constructing the physical world out of constructing a model of the physical world. A model right? of the physical world. So, and what I think, we do in science is create models. Are we closer to truth, or are we constructing models? Well, we have much better models in an objective sense, is that they allow us to accomplish much more and. Uh, describe a much wider range of phenomena accurately. So uh, we don't rely only on our senses, but on uh, telescopes and microscopes and magnetometers and accelerators and all kinds of tools. Uh, 
and demand an, uh, a description that's consistent with everything those tools reveal. So it's closer to truth. <laughs> but as, as you've alluded to, uh, the, it's an endless process, I think, because we, we're, as we've done very well on the analysis side. I think in culminating in the in the late 20th century with what's called the standard model, or I like to call the core theory, which seems to be a very complete theory of matter for practical purposes, with a very wide definition of what practical means. Uh, but the prostate uh, process of going from there to describing more complicated objects, even more complicated molecules that we want to use for drugs, let alone uh, human beings or brains, is an ongoing process. And we. Uh, so the question then is, is, is that's that's I think is is an uh, an open ended process. And, oh yes, there is, is then matter constructing models of matter. Yes, matter is constructing models of matter. matter. Yep. Yes. <laughs> can we ever create something completely ab initio, Frank or Len? In your opinion, can we physicists create something that has never existed before? And it's the old question: Is is math oh. discovered or invented? I mean, do we actually yeah. invent, rather than a model, actually physically creating something ab initio? Well, well it, it depends what your standards are. But let me give you an example that uh, is dear to my heart. That really. Uh, bore fruit in the, in the recent past. Uh, almost 40 years ago now, I was thinking about fundamental uh, principles of quantum mechanics and how they might be generalized. And for many years since the discovery of quantum mechanics, over about 50 years, uh, so since modern quantum mechanics, people thought that the, all, the possibilities for how particles could behave were limited to two, something called fermions and something called bosons. But in the early 80s, I realized there's a wide variety of other possibilities called eneons that uh, would be possible for emergent particles within matter. And in 1984, we made a uh, convincing theory, I think, of how they could emerge in certain states of matter but it's taken 40 years, and then finally last spring, uh, after many improvements in materials and techniques, and uh, people finally found it, you know, and then th that without the original concepts, there's no way you could blunder your way into that. And it's fundamentally new, I think, by most standards of what fundamental means, <laughs> what fundamentally new means. And uh, yeah, it came from, it, it was thought that became embodied in reality. I have a more uh, prosaic example, or <laughs> maybe a more poetic example. I, I created uh, two children, <laughs> and they're unique, they're new, they never existed before. Yeah. But not ab initio. I guess there's the old joke, yeah. you know, scientist says, scientist yeah. says to God, I can do anything you can do. God says, oh, yeah, can you make a man out of dirt? The scientist says, sure, just get me some dirt. God <laughs> says, no, 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 get your own dirt. You know, the joke being yeah, that, so, you know, those are materials uh, there beforehand. Of course. course. Yeah. Something out of the vacuum. Is that what you're asking? Me? Well, I just mean, you know, like, like, yeah, creating. Is it possible, you know, that's that matter is. So Deepak asked Frank. 
do we create the universe? Does a baby create the universe? And Frank answered properly, no, the baby is constructing a model of the universe, but he's not actually constructing a universe. There are people who say we can make a big bang or a black hole in a laboratory. Yeah. In that sense, do you guys believe that there's evidence well, for such things? Well, what kind of big well, even, laboratory? I mean, I think if you made a whatever, it, I mean, you're creating a new universe in laboratory. Is that is that what they mean? Some claim this. Some claim, yeah, you could well, create a black think, hole that would swallow up CERN. I, I, and I, well, what, if you make a black hole that swallows the Earth or CERN or you know, that, uh, why is that something from nothing? I, I don't. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think asking for something from nothing is. Uh, is asking a lot <laughs> and maybe and maybe actually although it's a grammatical sentence may not be something that actually makes sense when you <laughs> analyze uh the meaning of the words uh however i think a more fruitful question is whether you can get out more than you put in mm. in sense of uh you start with ingredients that don't have a lot of structure or complexity and kind of can't do much and you end up with an iPhone. And yes, you can definitely do that. <laughs> we do right. it. Right? I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of the inverse. I, I think it's all, we'd all agree you can destroy things. You can destroy matter, right? I mean, you can annihilate it. You can't destroy energy, but you can right. destroy matter. And in the sense that, Frank, you you know, uh, asymptotic freedom. I mean, you could explain that. You're basically shielding. And nature is invisible at some level to our gaze. But, but I think the inverse of destruction, and that's what I worry about. About with their vast tools, you know, Carl Sagan said, you know, whether or not we have the wisdom to handle the technology that our knowledge has produced, that is the key question. That's a big question, indeed. And uh, uh, it's not a settled question. <laughs> well, when you say, think, Brian, can you create some, I mean, the knowledge of things, that right, do you mean, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, you always have something that you start with, even, you know. I have what, what I, as a baby, developed as my understanding of the world. I have the math that I learned. I may have some, some I may create a new theory of physics or asymptotic freedom, uh, as Frank did, but, but, but I, starting from something, right? Um, what, what does it mean to start from nothing? That, uh, a, the moment a baby is born before any central input, even before the baby was born, because there's central input in the womb, when, when the baby is like eight molecules or has never experienced any part of the world, can it create, I mean, what? Can it create something? Well, first of all, I think we have to give credit to our wives for doing the hard work and creating <laughs> the baby, okay? I was present for a few minutes, I, I believe, at, at a certain moment. But uh, but yes, something that is truly never, you know, it's this old question, is math invented or discovered? And our, you know, this difference between, uh, as I said. Well, that's the, a different question, though, because invented versus discovered is a question of whether you, you feel that, uh, you know, the universe has some inherent principles that you're discovering or whether this is a math is a tool that the human brain is inventing. But what you asked before was, can you get something from nothing? So does that, I mean, does that mean if I never, you know, before math was there, somebody, Babylonian, I don't know, invented what we might call the first math, Sumerian, but, but that's not even coming from nothing because that person had experience of the world and knowledge of, of, of the world and had some basis of which to make that jump. So I'm not sure if, if it, as Frank said, it's a well-defined question to say. Well, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm riffing off what Deepak said. You know, can you create, is a model of the world the same as creating the world? Or I do believe that it's well, possible for us to destroy the world, right? I mean, we can destroy <laughs> things, I said. So is, there, is it a ratchet? Is it a one-way, unidirectional 
process or does it have symmetry and time and Frank's, you know, well, is, it, I, is it a time crystal in some sense? I, we, okay. Let me tell you what we can do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not that I, let me interject. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, what? Well, we can produce things that, in a sense, you could consider worlds if your standards are low enough. I mean, in materials, we can create uh, uh, homes for particles and homes for behaviors that are very different from what we find in the world as we know it. So the things with emergent properties that are very different, like anions, but uh, also uh, computers in general, the, the, uh, or uh, smart materials that do things that uh, uh, are not natural in the sense you don't find in the natural world. And we, we can design them. And in that sense, we're making worlds. Uh, and I think as time goes on, the things we can make are more and more impressive. And I don't think it's impossible. I think, it, in fact, I think it's very possible and maybe inevitable that we can make worlds that house intelligences, you know, intelligent. You know, some people would say we've already done that with, with computers that beat us at chess and so, but, but, uh, but, but have a more general kind of intelligence. And this, this would be embodied within, uh, some form of electronics or maybe a quantum computer, or the, 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 in any way, in any case, a physical object that's quite different from anything you find in the natural world. And it's not making something from nothing, but it's making, I don't know, in some sense, more from less or taking concepts and using them to make, to coax matter, to do things that, that uh, we didn't know they, it, uh, it could do. And, and there's a famous, uh, I think the third law of Arthur C. Clarke is that any sufficiently advanced technology look is indistinguishable from magic and i think that's certainly true if you took uh, someone even from a hundred years ago and brought them to today and showed them around they think it was magic or certainly they'd see that things that they couldn't begin to understand and wow they, instagram I need this on the farm. <laughs> and I would be very surprised if a hundred years from now that's also that's still the case that we could if we went forward, we would see things that uh, we would uh, that our minds would be properly boggled. Hi, everybody. Brian Keating back again with a middle episode reminder to please take two seconds and leave a small asterism of stars as a rating and maybe even a written review of the Into the Impossible podcast. Even if you give it one star, it really helps me out. This is a new year, a new beginning. As you know, January is named after the Roman god Janus, the god of portals, the god of doorways in Roman mythology, representing transitions and dichotomies, dualities, war and peace, beginnings and ends, Coke and Pepsi. And I ask you to help me begin this year off the right way with a review, a rating, a thumbs up, a comment that I promise you I will read and use only for good. Please do that. Please join my mailing list. Just go to briankeating.com. You'll get access to tons of free resources. I'll send you a free ebook, 60 pages in length that documents in illustrated fashion the great debate between astronomy's greatest intellects, 
Nobel Prize winner Adam Reese, Wendy Friedman, Sarah Seeger, Jan Levin, David Spergel, and myself held late in 2020 in the 100th anniversary year of astronomy's first great debate, the so-called Curtis-Shapley debate. I'll send you more things as year goes along, and you'll even find out advanced previews for my new upcoming book in 2021, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. Let me know what you think about that title. Join my mailing list. Like, comment, subscribe, do all those good things, and really help me out. Thank you. But before we go to the next question that I have for all of you, uh, let's uh, look at all the books uh, because uh, that's the purpose. Inform 15 million people out there that these are very important discussions. So, Frank, can we look at your book, Fundamentals? The Ten? Yeah, I happen to have a copy here. <laughs> and we will be linking the book. Leonard, your book. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, and tell us a few words about your relationship with Stephen. Well, um, Stephen contacted me uh, about 2003, and uh, he had read my first couple books and uh, asked if I, he was looking for someone to write with and someone who understood physics and uh, whose writing he liked. And I was certainly blessed and honored to, that he asked me. And uh, through our work, uh, first what we did was we rewrote a brief history of time to make it uh, simpler and clearer, really. Uh, that became a briefer history of time, so it was like a new edition. And then uh, he used to visit Caltech for about a month every year, and uh, I was on the faculty there. And I so when he came by the next time after that book was published, I gave him a proposal, and I said, "Why don't we write a book about your your new work?" Because all his other books were always about his work that he did in the seventies and eighties, and he, I thought he was doing fascinating things in the two thousands. And that took about five years. And so we, we worked together closely. That became the book, The Grand Design, and got to be friends. And uh, I have to say it was one of the most uh, inspiring or moving, um, life-changing things that ever happened to me to, to have that association with him because he was such a special uh, individual, partly, obviously, because of his uh, grit and his iron will to, to overcome his disability. Uh, where he all you know had to work so hard uh, just to get words out and couldn't move or, or take care of himself, and yet he had a tremendous um, outlook and sense of humor. But but also because um, as a human, as a person, he had an amazing uh, quality, which is I think very important to uh, satisfaction and happiness in life and to thriving in life, and that was a sense of purpose. Uh, he. I think in his younger years, in, in undergraduate, uh, he he was floating and he was kind of a goof off, and he was a brilliant guy, but but didn't have any particular thing he wanted to do. And and when he got sick, uh, he realized that, uh, or he decided that there were some questions that he wanted to answer about the universe, uh, and that's how did the universe begin, and why are the laws of nature what they are? And he decided then that he would. Um, dedicate what he thought was his last couple of years to to pursuing that, and that became decades and decades of, of that. And I think that really drove him, and, and that gave him his um, joy of living and his you know looking forward to being up each day and to attacking these problems and to working with other people and, and how they were uh, uh, looking at it. And that, and and and, I, and that was an inspiration to me because I um, you know I feel that I have a, a I, I found that as well. In science, um, and in as he did in popularizing science, and um, so he 
he really showed me how um, you know the Stoic philosophy, ancient Stoic philosophy that that you're and, and it's not far from your philosophy, Deepak. That 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 your uh, your your happiness, your satisfaction, your your um, um, joy or in, in life comes from within. That 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 you should that that it's good if if it's not material things that drive you or even uh, even other people it's it's good to have good relations with other people but really uh what what you are comes from within yourself and, and when you have that then other things that happen to you don't don't disturb you if they're where they might disturb you otherwise and i i've certainly learned that from you as well deepak you are you know about the most um calm and peaceful uh, <laughs> person uh that, that i've met and we've gone through you know different periods of things happening and, and then you're always just a rock and you're always smiling meditating I, I you know so that i have to say that's pretty amazing too and and um so i was lucky enough to have both of you guys in my life and to uh become become enriched by it so what i have to say is that because of you i had the good fortune to meet stephen hawking um at, in new york when he was flown over for his 70th birthday, we watched that ballet called Icarus. It's about this kid who skirts a black hole and gets lost in interstellar space and ends up in a different galaxy. And when he ends up in that galaxy, they say, oh, what, what spaceship is that? That model went out of uh, fashion about a few billion years ago. So, you know, that was an amazing play and I'm grateful to you that I've met Stephen because of you. Um, Brian has been an inspiration to me um, because he questions my habitual certainties. And uh, I think this conversation that we've just had, we could go on forever uh, and possibly we should. <laughs> Before we, we conclude, one of the most interesting parts of uh, Frank's book was his take on uh, complementarity. Yes. And I found that very refreshing because I have worked with uh, Menas Kapatos, who also trained at uh, MIT uh, a long time ago. Leonard knows him. And Menas has three principles when he talks about laws, you know, the laws of nature. One is universality. Whatever is here is everywhere. Uh, the second is complementarity. But the third you might not like is creative interactivity. And the reason I bring that up is you talk in your book about mass, spin, and charge as the most fundamental properties of matter. Yes. Yes? Yes? Yes. Okay. And then you also say, and I'm, I'm going to read from your book, I hope I can find it. You say, modern fundamental ingredients of matter, mass, spin, charge, have no intrinsic size or shape. They are structureless points where mass, spin, and charge reside. Um, so are they material entities? Well, by definition, that's what matter is. <laughs> and as we've discussed uh, now in different forms several times, uh, it's a big challenge to get 
to climb back up. So we do analysis to uh, understand the most basic ingredients of matter. And they turn out to be these very strange things, very unfamiliar things. Um, mass, spin, and charge located at points, or you can, in the spirit of complementarity, you can also look at it in other ways as quantum fields. Uh, and the, then there's the great task of going from those concepts to explain how uh, the the more visible aspects of the world uh, arise. And this is the process of analysis and synthesis. And it's a wonderful process that's been fantastically successful. So and Dr. Winchen, for a common person like me, I'm not a physicist, yeah. I don't understand the math, but for a common person, matter is physical. It's something that I can touch, I can grasp. Mass, yes. energy, and charge don't seem to be physical entities, but they give oh. rise to physical structures that we look at, including our own bodies. Could you, would you be sympathetic, just sympathetic to the idea that mass, charge, and spin are actually principles and and uh, processes that govern the interactivity of certain very fundamental laws that ultimately give rise to the experience of what we call matter. Yes. Well, I think that's an accurate description of how they actually work. Okay, well, right. then in that case... Uh, <laughs> PhD has been granted. Now you have an MIT PhD. Okay, well, in that case, I'm going to conclude our talk. So the, 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 point, the point of these concepts is that they go together with rules for how you use them, very yeah. precise rules for how you use them. And those, those rules are things that govern how more tangible aspects of matter uh, emerge. So that's okay. absolutely. Got it, I totally understood. Yeah. So I'm gonna just ask you a few questions and just respond yes or no. Because, <laughs> um, and feel free, Leonard and Brian, to interject. Since we talk about complementarity, are space and time complementarities? Uh, no, space-time is a unity of, of the two. And I don't, know of any useful way in which you can regard space and time as complementary uh, that you know complementarity in general is the idea that you can describe the same thing in different ways uh, so uh, space and time are are not that uh, in sense they're not complementary they're in a, in, a, in a way they're almost the same thing uh, but in other ways, they're different. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so the answer to your question of yes or no is a complementary complementary answer is yes and no, <laughs> both depending on how you exactly pose it. That's very quantum. Uh, <laughs> yes and no. So, in my mind, space time, wave particle, mass energy, body mind biological organism, world appearance, conscious, subconscious, science, philosophy, and you mentioned humility and philosophy. Humi humility and self-respect. 
I think uh, uh, I, 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 that's the most important. I, yeah, are all complementarities in my mind because uh -huh. there are different ways of looking at the same entity. I yeah, agree well, with some goals and I and I and I disagree with others. <laughs> but in general, I think uh, the more ways you can look at something and use those viewpoints to ask to answer important questions about that something, uh, the better off you are. And that's our free will and determinism complementarities. Absolutely, they are complementary because yeah. we experience free will. And free will is a necessary ingredient of the law <laughs> and the moral codes. But on the other hand, uh, determinism is built into the equations of how we describe matter very profoundly. And if you ask other kinds of questions about us, since we're made out of matter, uh, you will get determinate answers. <laughs> well, I don't agree. I, I, I think that free will and determinism are in opposition. No. Uh, so they're not describing the same thing. I think that if you believe in determinism, uh, then there is no free will. There is only an illusion of free will. No, uh, I, I disagree with that. that that's, um, I believe you do. That's, that's the result, I, I think, of a much too narrow conception of what free will means. And if you don't, I mean, if, if you don't believe in free will, how could you have laws? That uh, how, could, how how do you make a distinction between sanity and insanity? I mean, in, in, well, those are all look the, the so, thing between insanity and insanity are you know whatever artificial oh, in the, according to, according to the law yeah uh, guilt and innocence if you have to crime if you right <laughs> it's a crime. Right. It's like, oh, the crime big bang the big bang made me do it the big bang right. made me do That's it not true. <laughs> I would I would argue that that um, I if you I, knew if you knew okay. If you knew the uh, the exact state of of, of the person uh, at a given time, and the laws of physics apply, and as you said yourself, you don't believe yes. that anything outside the law of physics applies to the brain, then you would be able to to predict in principle what what, what the brain is going to do. Yes, but all those are big ifs. Those are, those are big ifs. Uh, first of all, quantum mechanics tells you you can't. But I don't want to say if. I'm not saying that 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 you have to stick with that. I'm saying that. That that um, if for what you say to be true, then this what we call this of free will because we don't know how the brain is doing the calculation. So it seems like it's free will, but if, if physics really governs the physical world one hundred percent with no exceptions, then to know everything that there is physically about the brain would allow me to predict the state of the brain at a later time, which would allow me to predict its actions if I could do the calculations. Now, free will is the word. Wait, wait, let me, right. let me just finish. Free, free will, I call an effective theory because it's the word we give to it because we can't do that and we can't do the calculation. So it's the illusion of free will because we're not capable of predicting what the system is going to do in the future. No. But in principle, because we're talking in principle, the, the, um, in principle, there is no free will. It's only in practice that we seem to have free will. Okay, then. Uh, what, what Frank is saying is quantum uncertainty actually says that there are problems. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's dangerous ground. I, no. <laughs> what I'm saying is, okay, so let, let's, that I'm saying that free will is a concept that stands on its own, that is extremely useful and absolutely necessary. I agree. If you're dealing with uh, 
your own experience or in the, with the law or with many moral concepts. So it's a concept we need. Saying it's an illusion uh, does not is, I think, very wrong because it's not an illusion. It's a thing that really applies in the world in very concrete circumstances. And we can discuss why it's a useful uh, uh, concept from the from uh, on the basis of uh, even though uh, the underlying description at some level is using determinate equations. Uh, first of all, we don't we so if you had a complete description of the human being, you could predict their behavior, but you can't have a complete description. The wave, we can't, we can't get the weight. It's not just a matter of practicality. We can't. The wave function has much too much structure. If you measure it, you lose that structure. Interaction. The, uh, and even if, and then there are severe practical problems in calculating the, the uh, 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 behavior of any complex uh, object, even in classical mechanics, there's uh, sensitivity to initial conditions, sometimes called chaos. Uh, and that's a practical problem that's so severe that it's, it's a problem of principle because it would take you so much time and so many resources to calculate how something behaves that uh, you would use up the entire universe <laughs> and all its time and, and all its and matter. And you need to know that <laughs> you can't actually do it. <laughs> And you also need to know the way from <laughs> uh, So we need, in practice, we need concepts. And this is the essence of complementarity. You need alternative concepts in order to describe the world. And it won't do to... I'm not saying that they're not useful and you don't need them to describe the world. Just like your brain calculates, as you said earlier, yeah, an illusion. It, 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 may, it creates a, a reality for you from the data that comes to your eyes. So I agree with all that. But what's dangerous about call, talking about free will the way you're doing it is, is the, the, the people who don't understand physics who think that the randomness of the wave function and, and the different ways that well, a wave function can... Oh, he, he didn't say that. He said, he said the interactions with the... Please let me just finish. Please let me just finish. Different ways that the wave function can be measured, those different outcomes... When you attach them to free will, it seems like our decisions that might be based on good and evil somehow are not um, are, are being determined by the physics. And and what I'm saying is all that is determined by the equations. We can't predict what the outcome of the equations are. And yes, when you measure something in quantum mechanically, you can get different answers with different probabilities. But those are totally independent and have nothing to do with what we think of as the decisions of humans, such as good and evil and things like that. So I have to be really careful when you use that concept. Yes. Well, what, misunderstand. In, any, in any application of complementarity, and this is one, you have to uh, treat the different sides on their, and within their own context and within their own domain. And applying the idea that uh, human beings are determinate and there's nothing you can do because it's the way you were born, it's your wave function, uh, would make a mess of the law and morality. And, and uh, on the other hand, uh, saying that uh, mind can affect matter and, and you can, by wishing, make it so and do faith healing, I think those also are very wrong. So you... You, when you when you apply complementarity, you have to be uh, you have to be true to the 
to the idea that different concepts are important for answering different kinds of questions, and neither one exhausts the full reality. Brian, any last comments from you before I have the last word? <laughs> no, I just say that I have to believe in free will because I have no other choice. <laughs> thank you guys that was really fun no, no no don't go i want to have the last word and then i want everyone to maybe comment maybe if mm -hmm. you want to but i do want to have the last word right now because uh, first of all i want to say that this was a very illuminating conversation for me i continue to learn from all of you uh, dr wilczek quoted uh, uh, Wittgenstein in his book. See, Frank, I read your book. <laughs> I read every sentence. So, Wittgenstein is a favorite philosopher of mine. And also, you know, I've been a fan of Schrodinger and his uh, interest in the origins of life. Mm. And uh, right now we are in, in a very interesting phase of questioning everything, including Darwinian evolution. Okay, <laughs> here we are. This is the latest issue of, uh, yeah. not the latest, but a new issue of science, a new scientist, which questions some of the dogmas of, uh, you know, random mutations yeah. and natural selection. So yeah. we're in a very interesting time. But it was Wittgenstein who said uh, in one of his essays, our life is a dream. We are asleep. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. So I come from a tradition, I come from a tradition which is the exact opposite of what we've been discussing. What we've been discussing is matter as the ontological primitive of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's an assumption. Yeah. You, know, you have to start with an assumption. Anything starts with an assumption. So matter is the ontological primitive of the universe is the way we do science and it works. No it question works. about it. That's right. Didn't and have it to works. work. No, it, it predicts the outcomes of experiments. Let's say that. And it creates technology, which saves yeah. our lives and so on. Yeah. But also the way we've done science, we've created climate change, we've created cyber hacking, we've created extinction of species, we've yes. poisoned the food chain, on nuclear and on. weapons. And nuclear yeah. weapons. Yeah. And we are basically uh, on a collective suicide mission at the moment. If we don't wake up to climate change and all yes. this, even the pandemic, you know, we say it's a, it's a mutation, but it's linked to the dysbiosis of the genetic information of our planet, which is due to, uh, I think, can be connected to climate, climate change as well. So in any case, in your book, you also mention species-specific experiences. A bat only knows the echo of ultrasound. Yeah. Bees navigate through ultraviolet. An yeah. insect with 100 eyes, I don't know what it sees or what it experiences. On and on. I can look at every species and look at it as having a bandwidth of experience. The human bandwidth of experience is less than 1% of the visual spectrum. Acoustic... Well, or acoustic... No, but but the, you're missing an important... Yeah, no, no, we can extend that through instruments. We can... Yeah, through instruments, we can... Uh, that's, uh, infrared uh, and radio waves and we all... Can, we can know what... 
we can know what we don't know, and then we can, uh, Absolutely. We can do something about it. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> but all this begins with the mode of knowing and experience in human consciousness. Science is an activity in human consciousness. Mathematics is an activity in human consciousness. Yeah. I think of mathematics as uh, unbelievable, amazing imagination in consciousness that somehow corresponds to the physical laws of nature. Then you have Gödel's theorem, which says there are laws that can't be proved. Then you have the cosmological constant, which is way <laughs> off. But then you have dark energy, dark matter. So well, we have lots of issues to solve. Now, yes. I come from a tradition which says that the ontological primitive of the universe is not matter, that matter is a human construct mm -hmm. for modes of knowing and experience in human consciousness Mm -hmm. that even the brain and the body and the physical world are a unified experience that we call mind, brain, body, and universe. But in fact, these are human constructs for modes of knowing and experience only in human consciousness. So when Einstein said the moon would still be there was when no one was looking at it, I think he meant a human moon, not the moon of a horseshoe crab that comes from <laughs> the depths of the ocean to the surface, lays eggs on a full moon night, and birds come to feed on it with exact precision of ecosystems, weather patterns, biological phenomena, gravitational waves, the earth spinning on its axis and hurtling through space at yeah. thousands of miles an hour, all of this is correlated somewhere. And therefore, what we call the scientific universe is a totally human construct and a very useful model that takes us closer to truth. But what truth is, is a great mystery still. Well, there are many things we don't know, but there are also things, there's a lot we do know. And yes, but who's the we that seeks to know? <laughs> well, I would say, you want us to comment on this? Well, I can speak for myself. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to know. All of you speak for yourself. <laughs> that, that, uh, that. Why is the experience of a caterpillar less legitimate no, I, I than the no. experience of a human being through uh, a human nervous system? Well, I just, I just want to, I would just go back to what I've went through at some length before, which is that so far we've never had to make uh, allowances in very, very delicate experiments uh, for what people are thinking. But well, we still I, don't know if, what produces if, thought. What is if, thought? If that, if that, if any such effect could be demonstrated. Well, would be fascinating. Would win several Nobel prizes and fame and fortune. Uh, uh, and so, there's an outstanding challenge. Uh, do it if, if if you think that mind can affect matter. Show me. my tradition, every time I lift my arm, mind is affecting matter. Every well, time but oh no, but that that well, but we mind 
Yes, mind is affecting matter, but we can uh, we can trace how that works. And yeah, we can is, trace that. Mind is working through matter to do affect. I mean, right now we are having a conversation. Yes, right. And if this conversation was scary, everybody in the world who was watching us, their cortisol level would go up. <laughs> their immune system would be compromised. Yeah. If this con conversation oh. elicited awe and wonder and joy. <laughs> They would make serotonin and dopamine and all this. So I, I personally feel that the distinction between mind and matter is actually is an artificial distinction. They are complementarities of a deeper reality. So that could believe be. in panpsychism. <laughs> no, panpsychism assumes the existence of matter. What I'm talking about says matter is the illusion. Even mind is the illusion. There's a deeper reality that experiences itself as mind and matter, and these are complementarities of that deeper reality is, and we don't know what that reality is other than mass, charge, and spin. <laughs> Deepak, when you say yeah. that you raise your hand, I, I don't agree that with the part that says it's your free will that caused your no, hand. No, I didn't say free will, it's an intention. Mm -hmm. But wait, your intention. intention, your intention, your free will, it's not, it, 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 it's still, explainable by physics. But what I agree with, and this is, I think, the deeper part of what you were saying, is that I, I agree with you completely that, in, in a sense, that, that I don't say that matter, charge, spin is any truth or any fundamental, um, necessarily fundamental aspect of the universe. It is a construction of the, these concepts and the theories that we build from them are constructions of the human mind that is peculiar to the way our mind is constructed. Intelligent aliens uh, who have a different kind of a mind, maybe a horseshoe crab, but, but much more intelligent, uh, or a bat, uh, could construct uh, their theory of the universe using completely different concepts, I believe, come up with the same uh, usefulness of their equations and their predictions. They would sense, they would perceive things differently, but they could have a completely different uh, viewpoint, just as, um, you know, uh, in physics, for instance, Feynman's formulation of quantum theory is different from uh, Heisenberg and, wow. and Schrodinger's formulation. They, they could have completely different mathematics based on different concepts that we may not be able to comprehend that are maybe beyond us or just different from the way well, we... Well, that's a thesaurus, but if, but if both but, but if both descriptions have the same experimental consequences... Right. Well, they're, they're they're equivalent <laughs> in a very in a very specific sense, and yes, I think they could, it, but they might not. They might not have anything that we would call mass, charge, and spin uh, that, that's easily identifiable in their theory. Well, it's not logically impossible, but all I can say is lots of luck. I want to spend a first point. Sorry. At you some want. point, we have to conclude. Right, if you want to have another conversation, let me ask uh, all of you, uh, Frank. I've been reading uh, <clears throat> Sean Carroll's book, Something Deeply Hidden. Uh -huh. Because it's infinite universes, uh, almost, you know, multiverses and infinite yes. universes. Leonard, in his book, uh, Grand Design, mentioned M theory and possibly 10 to the yes. one of. 500 universes. Brian, I don't know what your take is. <laughs> what, what do you guys think of these models? I asked uh, on that. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Frank. Well, I think they're very speculative. They, 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 
are inspired by uh, physical phenomena, but they don't explain a lot, and they uh, their consequences are rather nebulous. So they are not part of the core of our understanding of the universe. Yeah. They're interesting speculations and fun, but uh, to me, they're not the center of interest in physics <laughs> or our, our fundamental understanding. Yeah, of the I've, I've researched this a lot in, in terms of trying to find the complementarity between physics and faith. <sighs> and I found many, many faith-based statements that assume these to be correct, including based on my conversation with Len last week, uh, that Stephen Hawking sort of went to his grave, as far as I understand, believing in the veracity of M-theory, for which there's currently a complete absence of experimental data. Uh, well, and so I find it, you know, interesting that that in Frank's book he talks about this. How uh, this 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 is the interesting aspect of the complementarity of the multitudes within us, and the and sort of the humility that we also have to have as manifest through you know understanding the limits of our knowledge, but also as I say, checking your biases because we do have this anthropomorphization fetishization, and I think I want to particularly be on guard about that. So I am very anti-multiverse. I did ask Sean, I said, what's the probability that, that God exists? He said, less than 1%. I said, what's the probability that the multiverse or the many worlds of Everett exist? And he said, 50-50. <laughs> By the way, in the, in the Indian philosophical system that I'm talking about, there's no room for God as a person, but sure. there is room for God as pure consciousness that differentiates into different yeah. modes of knowing, different modes of knowing, different knowers, and different modalities known that are species specific. No one species has a privilege to truth over the others. We have the privilege of creating better models of the truth. Well, I'd love to debate that from a Judeo-Christian no, perspective. And <laughs> technologies that extend our experience of virtual reality. Yes. We're already in a virtual reality. I, I'm and with now you. with technology, we're expanding that with all the wonderful insights that you guys are supplying. I'd just like to conclude with a, uh, with a quote from Rumi. Um, he says, if you're not bewildered by now, go back to sleep. Elsewhere, <laughs> so, uh, he says, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. And I think the scientific pursuit is based on mystery, bewilderment, awe. And if we don't have those, we, our humanity is incomplete. And as long as we keep questioning, every theory of science so far has proved to be untrue. Uh, it, no. it, every theory so far <laughs> has been found to be incomplete. And incomplete, yes. Yeah. But That's as Isaac different. Asimov said, Deepak, <laughs> never forget what Isaac Asimov said. He said, if you think the world is flat, you're wrong. But if you think the world is perfectly spherical, you're also wrong, but you're less wrong than if you think it's flat. Yeah, but you see, the, the, the magical illusion of the flat Earth makes it possible for me to walk on the earth. If I knew it's spinning at dizzying speeds and hurtling to, uh, through space at thousands of miles an hour, and I knew that my body is proportionately as void as intergalactic space, I wouldn't have a life. 
No, not after oh, you get your no, PhD you from, you... from MIT with Frank. After you get that, you'll have no more worries, no neuroses. You would. I mean, you can perfectly well get around. And I think these scientific insights about the world spinning around and moving add to our understanding of reality. They don't replace uh, or void our working models of how to get around in the world that we construct as babies. They add to it. And add to it, but they also and my mission, my mission in fundamentals is to expand people's minds, not not Absolutely. to feed anything into them. <laughs> right. Grateful to you for that. Right. But I also right. believe that what we call physical matter and the world of perceptions is a magical lie. <laughs> Period. It's a very workable and interesting magical lie. But we again, need a part two. Because <laughs> I'm late for dinner. <laughs> I'm going to bring a bottle, Scott. Okay, <laughs> before one. we end, the gentleman, uh, everyone listening to us, Dr. Wilczek, um, he's a very humble person. He could have named the anion the Wilczek particle, but he didn't. <laughs> okay. uh, so I'm grateful to, to you, sir, for your humility. Leonard, for being so open to these conversations and Brian for bringing us together and all these wonderful meetings we've had with Sir Roger Penrose, Stuart Hameroff, and all these great people who are bringing us closer to truth. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Balco. Mm-hmm.